Welcome to HCIC Next, a podcast focused on how digital marketing leaders are reshaping marketing the healthcare industry as a whole. This podcast series shares information about the innovations that are happening today in digital marketing and helps you understand how to apply what has worked in other healthcare systems across the country to your very own organization. The sessions you're going to hear in this series were originally captured at the 2019 Healthcare Internet Conference that was in Orlando, Florida. Today, you're hearing a session on digital marketing and advertising entitled Delivering on the Promise of an Empowered Digital Experience with Jeremy Rogers and Brian Gresh. Jeremy works at Indiana University Health as the Executive Director of Digital Marketing and Experience, where he's responsible for not only the digital presence, but the digital experience, innovation, and strategy within the university. Brian Gresh is the president of Loyal Healthcare's Conversation and Consumer Experience Platform. Awesome. Welcome, everyone. Glad you came today. By way of agenda, we have a lot to burn through. We're going to talk a bit about sort of our perspective on consumerism, how we've adopted a consumer-first mindset, um, and then spend a lot of time talking about specific tactics. I will warn you, um, I may geek out on some of these things, so bear with me. We're not going to go really deep on any of them, but we have several to burn through. Um, we've also um, reserved quite a bit of time at the end, so I would, I would ask you, if you have questions, please, we'll have time at the end um, to get very detailed if we need to, uh, but that's the intent. We also don't want to bore you with death by PowerPoint, so we're going to collaborate here a bit. Um, so again, we'll have plenty of times for Q&A. So by way of overview, IU Health is the largest and most comprehensive health system in the state of Indiana. We have 16 hospitals, more than 30,000 team members, and hundreds of primary and specialty care offices across the state. Um, and Loyal, we are a healthcare consumer experience company. Um, we were founded in 2015. We're based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we offer a couple different solutions in our platform, um, but we primarily focus on data management, um, AI and chatbot technology, and transparency solutions. And um, we've been fortunate enough to partner with IU since 2017. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Awesome. So let's get into it. So we're going to start out with um, just a little bit of talk about consumerism and kind of what it is and, and why it's important. Um, I think we're all hearing you know, consumerism a lot um, lately. And I think it's really kind of the evolution of a, of a conversation that's been going on for a while in our industry, right? So if you roll back the clock a little while, um, people were talking a lot about patient experience a few years ago, and that was the big buzzword. And, and now everyone's talking about consumerism, and people are hiring consumer officers, and um, it's, it's become you know the, the word that's everywhere. But I think... Um, it's, it's really important because it's finally acknowledging the fact that healthcare is not immune to consumerism, right? That it's, it's part of the journey that a patient has and patient journey doesn't just start at the clinical um, encounter when they walk into the hospital. There's all of these other touch points prior to that and in all of these other industries around us, whether it's Amazon or in the travel industry or the financial industry, um, people are used to having convenience. They're able to transact. Um, they're, they're in control of their consumerism, right? They're able to make choices and they're able to uh, do the things they want when they want it. And so I think we're finally acknowledging that one, that's important. And two, um, 
our customers in the healthcare industry are already doing those things, whether we like it or not. So we, we I think, are finally acknowledging that and, and starting to address that with a lot of different uh, engagement tools. Um, and it's also important because consumers have choice. Um, we, we, sometimes I think we forget that patients have choice um, because there's so many things that tie them to providers like their insurance plan and, and you know, all these, other, all these other issues that impact them. But the fact is they are making choices and more and more they're making choices based on convenience and, and digital convenience as well. So they want to be able to make an appointment. They want to be able to ask questions. They want to be able to pay their bill. They want to be able to do all of these things online. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny because they prefer to do things online, just like in every other aspect of their life. But when it comes to healthcare, I don't think there's a single, single healthcare system out there um, that's truly digital, right? Almost every health system, it doesn't matter, you can name the top 10 health systems, the majority of their appointments are being made by the phone. Um, the majority of questions are being answered through phone calls. Um, and so, or maybe email, if, if we're that lucky. Or fax. Yeah, or fax, right? Like what other industry has still uses fax machines to the, to the level of, of healthcare? Um, but, but people are making those decisions. And so that's why this is important. That's why we want to kind of frame the conversation around. Okay. So to calibrate a bit, um, by a show of hands, who in the room are offering some type of same-day care today? Same-day primary care, urgent care, walk-in clinics, things like that. So most of us. Okay. How many of you are offering online scheduling for new patients, not existing patients? So we'll say, let's say 20%, roughly. Okay, that's good to calibrate. Thank you. Um, so we look at that a lot in terms of how accessible we are to our customers. This is a recent, recent Kaufman Hall survey that came out that I, I like the way they visualize. Um, if you can't read it, I apologize, a bit of an eye chart. The, the red is bad. So red is not available or limited availability. So on the far right, you have subscription-based primary care is not very available. On the far left, walk-in clinics, which are, again, less than 50%. And it goes for things like urgent care, same-day appointments, online scheduling. Um, but our perspective at IU Health is that convenience and access are linchpins to any consumer strategy uh, tied to consumerism. So we, we look a lot at these specific areas. Um, to take a step back in terms of how we are putting the customer at the center of what we do, um, about three years ago, we made the approach to align our customer experience team as well as our marketing team. So we're now together in one unified organization. Um, at that same time, we really knew we had to focus on putting the customer at the center of all of our decision making, not just brand planning and day-to-day -day, uh, operations, but every, every plan that we're doing, we need to have customer feedback embedded into it. So we had things like PFAX, which I'm sure most of you already had, traditional channel to gather customer information. Uh, but we wanted to add to that with a variety of different options. So one example I'll mention is um, about two years ago, we launched what we call IU Health Insiders, which is basically a virtual PFAC. Today, it's about 2,500 patients who have raised their hand and opted in uh, to participate in virtual focus groups, take online surveys periodically. Um, that's been really successful for us. We've used you know things like... Um, 
our, our dress policy, our attire policy for nurses and their caregivers, um, we validated the research for that with our uh, IU Health Insiders team. Um, we asked questions about billing. How understandable is your EOB? Do you understand how to pay a bill? Things like that. So it's, it's really from the most mundane question to large uh, system-wide initiatives go through that insiders group for validation. Um, we're recently adding things like mystery shopping. So those of us from retail understand secret shopping is a very common practice in retail. It's not very common in healthcare yet. So we're doing more and more of that. Uh, we're also launching a speakers bureau. So finding customers and patients who are willing to speak whenever there's an opportunity um, in local media with press, folks like that. They've been pre-vetted. We know for certain topics or uh, conditions, they may be willing to speak to the media. So just things like that to embed that. Um, you see things like journey mapping, which is very commonplace nowadays. But again, trying to find different approaches to really put the customer at the center of all of our decisions. Um, so I touched on that a bit in terms of our org structure. Um, I would say the fact that we've aligned customer experience and marketing is still not commonplace in healthcare from what I've found. Um, and it's really, it's really been successful for us because really any, any marketing tactic we have is balanced against the customer experience overlay. So um, literally from the executive leadership team, we're in meetings where we talk about both marketing experience tactics uh, hand in hand. They're not you know one trumping the other, one over the other. So that's been yeah. really, really successful for us. And, and you know, just to echo what Jeremy's saying, it's we, we talk to a lot of different health systems and I think that's part of the consumerism trend, mm -hmm. right? You've, you've, in most health systems, there's these traditional yep. groups like marketing and then there's yep. pa patient experience, but that there starts to become yeah. this tension now because patient experience is being told they need to focus Correct. on consumerism yeah. and the customer journey. So in the past, it yeah. may have been they were with quality and safety or clinical operations. Now they're directly tied to marketing and customer engagement. Yeah. So I totally agree, Brian. And, and I would encourage anyone who, if you're not aligned, start talking and get aligned because you, you both need each other's skill sets uh, to, to really, I think, have a, a great consumer strategy. Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Um, so another poll, raise your hand if you know what net promoter score is. So most of us. Great. Now raise your hand if you're currently using net promoter score in your current organization. So we'll say 15% yeah, roughly. roughly. Um, so our story here was um, we began to realize probably four years ago that HCAPs were not providing us good data in terms of customer loyalty. So using research from other industries, we really wanted to move towards measures that we could attribute loyalty towards to align there. Um, we've been on a journey since then. Um, now we are still sending CAP surveys. We have to legally, but we're sending the bare minimum. All other customers receive a net promoter score survey within 48 hours of discharge, either via outpatient or inpatient. Um, and, and we've really moved towards net promoter score being our single experience benchmark that we're using system-wide. So regardless of venue of care, type of care, we're capturing net promoter score. Um, we're on track this year to collect over half a million responses of those surveys. Um, our response rates vary by clinical setting, but it's typically 24 to 26%, so really, really material numbers there. Um, and it's been interesting because we're, we're using that internally now. It's one of our four primary system objectives is to improve our experience score. So it's been interesting watching leaders, you know, very operational driven leaders to physician group leaders really aligning on the power of 
the NPS or experience score in measuring true customer loyalty. Um, so that's that's been a really interesting piece there, and I'll dig into that later when we talk about star ratings. Talk more about yep, that. yep. Um, so in terms of this visualization, I mentioned journey mapping earlier. I'm sure most of you have done something similar to this. Um, we, we, we have a massive journey map. We boiled it down to a few vertical areas that we like to align on, and we overlay our loyalty roadmap, which basically it is for our marketing and experience teams, what is our three-year roadmap of things we're working on strategically? That all gets overlaid on top of this journey map. Um, and I'll Pardon me, it's, it's certainly not linear in nature. We realize it is a cycle in many cases, but for visualization, it looks better this way. Um, so the big takeaway for me is it's not, you know, we tend to focus a lot on the point of care encounter, but if you look pre and post, there are so many brand and experience touch points that occur, um, and, and we really had to begin realizing that the, the totality of the customer journey was all of those touch points. In many ways, that was our brand, that is our experience, so we had to make sure that we weren't focusing just in one area over another. Um, and this has also been really successful. I think the, the most important part is that we repeat it over and over again. So literally in every one of our brand planning meetings, there's a visual of this or something very similar. So people always know, okay, which particular part of the journey are we looking at, are we focused on? Um, and we come back to that over and over again. So if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do something similar. Um, so now let's get into some of the tactics. And again, I'll geek out, so apologies for that. So um, we tried to build these chronologically. So in terms of our provider directory, you may say, hey, it's boring, everyone has it. We really believe that in terms of our web front door, the provider directory is probably our marquee brand experience. Like most of you, we get more traffic to our provider directory than any other aspect of our public websites combined. Um, so we realized if it's going to be a core brand experience, it's our job to make it as good as possible. Now, the challenge is, like many of you, we have massive master data issues. We have multiple credentialing systems. We don't have single sources of truth for most of this data. So we, about two years ago, began to rebuild our entire public web front end. As part of that, we tore down our provider directories of the past and rebuilt them from the ground up. Um, built it, again, not to be the source of truth, but to be able to consume data from multiple sources of truth and kind of be the single hub for our web experience. So you probably can't see very well here, but again, we did lots of usability testing on what, what were customers expecting to see when they're searching for a new provider. So a very typical e-commerce experience, lots of search functionality, lots of facets they can filter by videos or online scheduling or accepting new patients, specialty. There's literally, if I scroll down, dozens more options there. Um, Again, integrating data from credentialing systems, scheduling systems, um, our star ratings data, stuff like that. But that, that really served as the foundation, sort of the linchpin of everything that we built from that. Um, from there, we had in the past done third-party listings sort of in a mixed approach. We had some people focusing on certain geographies, some people focus on, on certain specialties, we said, hey, now that we have the data good enough to publish on our own consumer websites, let's take that data externally um, at scale. So we, um, about a year ago, chose Yext as our partner here. Um, and we went from, in the past, we were powering about 200 primary care locations. We're now powering 
1,100 employed providers in over 800 locations. And you may say, hey, how do you get from 800 locations there, but your slide before said 300 primary care? We're talking suite level locations. So within most of our hospitals, we'll have dozens of unique locations powered, individual clinics, labs, pharmacies, what have you. Those all are unique locations. Those are all directly integrated with our public website. So the moment information is fed from a credentialing system or a back-end system, it's then federated out to all the third parties as well. Um, so we've been on a really good success with that for the past year or so. Um, but that, again, we had to get our foundation solid first before we could propagate that data externally, um, which I think is probably the opposite of how some of you have done it. We're, we were probably five years behind others in doing it this way, but I think it was the right approach to get our data solid first before we took it externally. And, and I go ahead, Brian. Just to add to that, I think, I think, you know, Jeremy's kind of <laughs> underplaying how important this is, right? Like the foundation piece yeah. is so critical to any of the engagement pieces that you put on the top of it, right? So whether it's the provider directory, whether it's yeah. the listings, um, and I think that I think it's also shifting the mindset um, in a lot of healthcare organizations. The provider directory, I mean, the origins of the provider directory were like. They, they were like the yearbook or yep. like, you know, the flip book yeah. that that was kind of, you know, to showcase the department, right, yeah. or the chair or whoever it might be. Um, and then they kind of became these online tools. Mm -hmm. But I think it's rethinking that and thinking of it as inventory, yeah. right? Which exactly you never right. say to the doctor that they're inventory, No, we do, right? we do. Yeah, exactly. So well, that's great. I, I, we talk about merchandising. So yeah. my background is e-commerce. So we're merchandising our services. Our yeah. providers are our service providers. So their profiles are the way we merchandise them. Yeah. Absolutely. We talked about enriched profiles. So we have a mix of employed and independent providers. We offer um, extra features for our employed providers that we cannot offer to independents. So how do we offer extra merchandising? It's right. very, very similar. Yeah, it's kind of like the enhanced mm -hmm. vendor on Amazon yep. or something or like the preferred yep. you know, no, provider. It, it, it's exactly right. But I think thinking about them as inventory, mm -hmm. thinking about your locations as inventory and managing it such is really, really important because then it gives you the ability to broadcast. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, we yeah. before last year, we were not powering any of the extra locations externally. Um, as a proof point, we're on track this year alone to drive over a million click-to-call phone calls from Google alone just on third-party listings. It's a massive number, and the business value drives from there. Question real quick? Sure. Um, on the business listings, and this is something that we are going through right yep. now, Yep. It is. Great question. So we, um, it's a business value analysis based upon um, the conversion metrics. So we use online scheduling, appointment requests, and phone calls. We have data that shows by location what percentage of those calls are related to a new appointment being scheduled, and we use that in terms of just it's a calculation basically. Now the challenge where we get in trouble is. Internally, we have four different definitions of what a new patient is. So some people quibble over, you know, have they ever had an encounter with our system ever before? Are they new to this particular provider? Our revenue cycle folks say, have they been seen in the past two years or three years? Um, I don't want to get into that. It's more about, okay, if we're, if we're driving a conversion, how much is that relationship in terms of downstream revenue, lifetime value, things like that? So it's, it's not easy. And I'll tell you, that is a super hard conversation to have. I feel you. Um, okay, so 
Easy question, how many of you use Amazon ratings and reviews every day when you buy things online? I expect everyone, that's easy. How many of you are publishing ratings online for your providers or your services today? So, was that a third, roughly? Yeah, about a third. Okay, awesome, that's good to see. Um, so, my colleague here is very famous for this particular topic, but I'll try to take it, and please correct me if please. I'm wrong. Um, so we, about two and a half years ago, decided, I, I mentioned the Net Promoter Score survey, we decided that gathering that data, meaningful sample sizes, we really wanted to use that same data set to publish star ratings for all of our employed providers. Um, that was a very provocative topic internally, uh, particularly because we were not going to be using the traditional CAPS data, but actually the net promoter score. So the likelihood to recommend the provider's practice. So we had lots of conversations, roadshows to convince people, hey, it's a good story. Our star ratings are very, very good by and large, and it's what our consumers demand today. Um, so we did go live in 2017. We now have close to 1,500 employed providers that we're powering ratings and reviews for. Um, it's not across all care settings. So it's mostly physician office visits for the providers. We're not doing hospital-based providers like anesthesiologists, hospitalists. It's really where consumer search and choice matters. We have those star ratings. Um, our sample sizes are great. So most of our providers have Oh, almost a thousand reviews now. Um, the av our average star rating is about 4.6. So again, very, very good by and large. So that's not too revolutionary. Folks like Brian have been doing this for years and years. What I would say though is in this screenshot, we have begun to deploy it across other types of care settings. So for example, locations. Um, is anyone else in the room publishing first party star ratings for locations? Okay. Nice. Kudos. Um, we did that earlier this year. All by yourself. <laughs> Again, for us, it was largely an SEO play, um, but we quickly realized, based upon customer feedback, the customer now expects, however they're consuming care, whether it's selecting a provider, looking at a service line, or looking at a location, they want to be able to compare ratings from other customers. So we're doing it now at the location. So in this example, one of our hospitals has over 41,000 ratings. Again, this is a net promoter score survey. It's different than the provider office. In this case, we're asking likelihood to recommend the hospital. So it's a different data set, but a similar construct. Um, we're now live with over 500 locations system-wide, ranging from our largest hospitals down to individual clinics. Um, really successful for us. Um, our next beachhead is mid-level providers, so we have over a thousand APPs and mid-levels. We really want to look at publishing more of their ratings. Um, aggregate service line ratings, we, we technically could do it today. The trouble is um, publishing one single rating, for example, for primary care across our entire footprint, we're not sure how, how meaningful that really is because you're talking thousands of doctors hundreds of miles apart, is that meaningful? We don't know. I think we'll probably do something in sort of a small approach, like maybe a smaller transplant service or um, you know, plastic surgery, where there are only a couple dozen providers, things like that. But we're still working on that. But yeah, it's been really successful for us. Yeah. Anything you would add there, Brian? I was just going to say that I think, um, I think using MPS instead of the HCAPS survey to do this is, is much more aligned with the yeah. idea of consumerism as well, right? It's a simple survey. Um, it's consumer focused. It's not care focused. Yep. Um, and you know, just full disclosure, and, and one of my former colleagues at U of U is here. Um, 
we when we started doing that at, at University of Utah, I mean, in full transparency, no pun intended, um, we didn't do it to improve patient experience. That wasn't our first goal. It was really around SEO and how could we list ourselves next to third-party review sites so that we would have visibility and we could drive traffic. That was the first goal. The, the idea that it also started to improve people's experience in the digital space was, was an added benefit yep. and really kind of took over the conversation. But all we were looking for was a source of data. HCAPs provided a validated source. Yep. But if you can do it this way, it's even better because it's much more consumer focused and consumer friendly. No doubt. Yeah. So for go question, please. So on the publishing to the locations, are you taking your survey data and pushing it on your URL? Or are you talking and or talking about surveying and allowing the patient to push it? So you're talking you mean third party surveys or GMB or other third party social reviews, is that what you mean versus our first party data? When you were talking about publishing Yes. This is first party, so it's our it's our net promoter score survey. We're serving them the same way, exactly. And then we publish it first party on our site. Yep. So they do the survey, hand it to us, we help create yeah. some JavaScript, and yeah. then that goes back onto yeah. the site. To get detailed, NRC is the survey administrator. We collect that data from them, we package it up, give it to Loyal, they help us publish it online. That's the process that we have today. Yep. Well, I don't think we talked about this earlier. I think it's it's an emerging space right now. I think if you haven't heard, Google's announced basically they're going to they're going to really hammer down on first party survey publication on your own site. Um, the goal being to avoid people sort of astroturfing or do, not publishing genuine survey data. So far, and Brian, you may agree, I have not seen anyone in healthcare being dinged by that, but time will tell. I think there's a possibly a carve out because this type of survey is a experience survey, especially the CAPS type equivalent is a valid, you know, governmentally regulated survey. So I think it's possible it may be accepted over time, but it's day by day, we don't know the answer. Would you, yeah, is that I, what you've heard I would too, echo Brian? that. We, we've been watching it really closely across a lot of different sites, and we haven't seen yeah. anything yet. Um, but it's certainly on our minds. Yeah. But I, I think my guess is they're, they're going to carve yeah. it out. Yeah. And I would say worst case scenario, if we do lose that SERP exposure, we'll still keep publishing because it's the right thing to do. We still believe in terms of consumer choice, we have lots of feedback showing they're using this data every day to make an informed choice. And so even if we lose the SEO benefit, it's still adding a lot of value for us. And so for those who haven't done it yet, one thing I would add, we launched first with just the ratings, not the reviews, knowing that as soon as we did that, we would get lots of customer feedback. Hey, I like the data, but what's the actual, what's the comment behind it? And that really helped sort of flip a lot of our provider leadership over to allow that. Um, we've now published more than 100,000 customer reviews to go along with the star ratings. So we're really doing it at scale now. Yeah. So awesome stuff there. Um, okay, online scheduling again, I'm going to go high level, not super deep. So we've offered online scheduling for over six years now. We are a Cerner shop. I think probably most of your Epic shops, I'll tell you if you don't know, Cerner is probably five years behind Epic in terms of direct scheduling and sort of the, the enabling it for your, your websites. Um, we first launched with just our patient portal for existing patients. Um, we quickly realized that Cerner did not have the tooling to enable us to allow 
consumers or non-existing patients to book. So in 2016, we partnered with ZocDoc to power our consumer scheduling. That went live with over 400 providers late that year. Um, it's been very successful. Um, our big challenges now are not with technology. They're with opening access and operational issues. Um, we believe, well, our goal is within two years to have 1,200 providers enabled for online scheduling, not just for existing, but for new also. Um, that To get that done, it will be an access challenge, not a marketing or technology challenge. Um, I will tell you, we've since 2017, we've more than doubled our online scheduling volumes. Uh, primary care right now is about 82% of all of our volumes, so it's still heavy primary care, women's health, general pediatrics, but we do have 20 or 25 other specialties with mixed coverage. Um, it's been mostly successful for us in the urban or suburban areas of central Indiana. Um, we have work to do in our further afield regions, but a lot, of, a lot of really good stuff there. We've also added on the far right example for our urgent care clinics, um, save a spot in line functionality, which we've been piloting, um, not really heavily promoting it, but it's been really well adopted. Um, that's, that's driving material volume for us as we, we scale our urgent care clinics more and more. And I, I just wanna, again, echo Jeremy's comments yeah. where scheduling is not a technical problem. Um, Cerner has been behind. Yep. We're, we're working with Cerner. They are improving their APIs every day. Um, Epic has really come a long way in terms of giving us access into their um, into their APIs and and just scheduling is not a problem. Yeah. It's it's doable um, from a technical standpoint. And we, we've done a bunch. Other people yep. are doing a bunch of stuff. Um, it's really again, I think it's changing that mindset and thinking about it from an inventory standpoint. Yeah. Right? You can't be a consumer first healthcare organization if you don't have any inventory right. to give to consumers. Yep, exactly and, right. You know, I, I, I always think of like the airline example. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if you went to Delta and they showed you a bunch of planes that you couldn't book a seat on? Right. I mean, like, or you saw a list of the pilots and it was like, oh, that they, they look really yeah. nice, but like you couldn't actually book an appointment with them. It, yeah. It's just, it's kind of silly. We, we serve up hundreds of doctor profiles with no access. Yeah. So, I think that's where the conversation has to shift. Yeah, I agree. And it's a tough one, but until we get that piece yeah. fixed, uh, the technology is not going to solve it. What still amazes me, Brian, is even to this day, we have customers who comment that they still don't, be they, they don't believe they were able to book online. Yeah. Like it's still yeah. consumer yeah. adoption and understanding of the capability is still very, very immature. Um, right now, we're booking about 6% of all of our appointments online. We'd like to double that number in the foreseeable future. Yeah. So huge and investment there. You guys are doing a huge number. There's a few systems out there that are now into the hundreds of thousands of yep. appointments. But when you look at that in terms of percentages of overall, it's yep. it's still a drop in the bucket and there's such an opportunity there. And I think I think the health system that solves that problem is gonna just jump yep. out in front so fast. Totally agree. Yeah. Okay, um, bio videos, you may say, oh, this is not really a enticing topic. Um, we, just like Brian mentioned with ratings, we started this about three years ago, primarily driven by SEO. We were getting big SEO lift here. Um, we were amazed, though, once we began to scale up a bit, some of the really cool stories we were getting from our providers on new patients who were coming in, first-time appointment mentioning, they chose them solely because they mentioned they have four kids in the video and they wanted a, a like-minded provider. 
I had a doctor tell me a few weeks ago, he had a patient picked him because he mentioned hiking is one of his hobbies and the patient wanted to find a doctor who he could talk to hiking about. Um, so it's really been amazing. Um, we've now produced more than 800 bio video system wide. So we're really scaling up, scaling up now. Um, We've really done that with the combination of internal and external resources. Um, we'd like to publish by the end of next year over 1,500, so we, we have a lot of room to go there. Um, we're dabbling with things like A-B testing, so we've filmed a few videos, some that are more conservative, you know, lab coat, stethoscope, others where they're wearing Hawaiian shirts or playing a guitar. We're gonna test in terms of which segments of our customers connect better with different types of videos. Um, we're also looking, we have lots of providers who aren't very comfortable being on film. Either they just don't like it or they're non-native English speakers. So we're doing things in terms of voiceover or multilingual approaches to help them out. Um, but it's been a huge push for us and one that I I wouldn't have predicted it would be so successful, but we had really, really good good movement there. Yeah, and I, I love this because it's low tech, but it's super con consumer yep. first, right? Um, when I was at uh, Cleveland Clinic, we did a similar project where we we mapped out for like a year getting every provider of a physician video on their on their profile page. And I mean, you you saw the the lift right away. Yep. You know, I mean, more time on site, more more page views. We had the same kind of feedback from yep. providers. So it's it's an easy win, and it and it improves a lot of different areas. Yeah, we've actually had. Um in one of our physician groups, they've actually made it part of their compensation plan where to get their bonus, they have to film the bio video. Um, we've <laughs> actually are already booked out through 2020 for all of our onboarding, like the training orientation for new providers. Yep. Those are already booked out over a year in advance. Sure. Question back here. Yes. It's all of the above. So the question was, how do we do it? Um, we've literally, we, we have a videography team internally who we partner with for the bigger scheduled shoots. So they'll schedule the months in advance. They go set up the night before. They'll film doctors all day long. They'll typically, in a good day, film 20 to 25 in one day. Um, that's one, that's one end. The other end is the orientation I mentioned where they set up in a central building. All the providers have to come there. They literally have a walk-in where if they want to film, we, we have it down kind of to more of a science now where they have a script. We hear the questions we're going to ask you. Please think about it in advance, things like that. Um, but we realize to get to double where we're at right now, we're going to have to do more sort of feet on the street bootstrap. So we've actually recently purchased basically video kits for all of our regions. They'll have their own embedded kit. We have instructions we can video conference in to help the setup, um, but we're trying like a rising tide lifts all boats to film more videos, but it's not easy, but it's been very successful. Okay, um, Okay. personalization, a topic near and dear to my heart. So um, this was a big buzz maybe two years ago and, and we debated, okay, we wanna be personalized, but we don't wanna be creepy. What can that mean? So as we were rebuilding our consumer front end, um, we chose optimizely for A-B testing and personalization. So a few examples I'll throw out here. So we're doing basic geolocation-driven uh, personalization. So for example, if you're in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we don't have a hospital there. We have primary care, urgent care. So when you visit our site, we're going to heavily message on the homepage those local providers, local locations, and we're only going to focus on service content that is primary care oriented. Um, 
If you come in the evening, any of our locations, we will promote urgent care between the hours of 5 and 8 p.m. After 8 p.m., we'll pivot and maybe do more of an ED-focused approach where, hey, if you're coming to our website in the middle of the night for care, it may be an emergency. So we kind of we bubble that call to action up to the top, and that's been successful. Um, we're also doing um, ad-driven personalization. So via tagging um, from social ads, we're carrying through featured stories, recommended providers, and we're making the calls to action dynamic based upon the channel they came through. And then finally, um, and probably most interestingly, we're doing segmentation and bucketing. So in this example here, you probably can't read it, but it says prepare for your new arrival. In this scenario, if, if a user has come to our public website and they've searched for things like labor and delivery, or they've browsed a profile for uh, a laborist or an OBGYN for certain service lines, we will then tag them anonymously, a tip of compliance, and when they come back, um, we'll feature a, a service area on the homepage that you can't tell what the providers we're recommending here are all OBGYNs who are labor and delivery specialists in their local area. So we're, all, we're doing that for probably out a dozen service areas. So labor and deliveries, one, um, joint replacements, one, primary care, new movers. So if we know you're a, a new resident of an area, we may promote services there that would be attractive to you. Um, it's been really interesting. So I think we measure success here based upon conversion rate. So um, in some cases, I mentioned the urgent care example, we can show a 2x conversion rate increase if we feature urgent care during certain day parts when it's just more attractive to users. Um, on the social ads I mentioned, we've seen up to a 20% increase in conversion when personalizing the CTA versus a control group. So it's been really interesting. Um, again, that was built on an AB multivariate test model, but then we layered on top the personalization to add to that. Question? It's craft. It's a PHP CMS. Yep. Other question? Um, with the personalization, so this bubbling up on your homepage. Yep. Knowing that homepage is not using it. Correct. 8% of our people hit the homepage. You're right. It's throughout the experience. It's throughout the experience. So the personalization is embedded throughout. So regardless of how you come in, this example, they, they're a return user. They've come back. But we'll, the personalization follows them all the way through the entire experience. Great question. Question over there? What, behind you there, one more. Go ahead. <laughs> um, are you finding issues with the browsers that are starting to limit? Um, issue, issues is probably a strong word. Yes, there are limitations. We, all, we always have fallback content if we can't personalize, um, but so far we've not seen a huge issue there. Great question. Go for it. Uh, what vendor did you say you were Optimizely. So we did... Um, if you look at this space closely, there are folks like Acquia, for example, who do similar capabilities. The issue we have from a compliance perspective, many of them are using profile-based segmentation where they create a profile for that user and they persist it for up to two months. Our legal team from a HIPAA perspective was very concerned about that. So um, we were able to stru structure our terms with optimizing to make it less of a compliance challenge. I'm curious, uh, Great question. So we, on my team, we have a we have a personalization working group that um, comes up with the ideas, and then some cases it'll require developer support to implement the personalization. In some cases, it's basically plug and play. So if it's content personalization, we can do that pretty much on the fly. If we're modifying functionality or deep calls to action, you would pull in a developer support from our agency to make that happen. Do you have any on staff developers? No, we don't. 
No developers. Uh, online scheduling, um, save my spot for urgent care. Um, for certain specialties, it's appointment requests online. So if they can't book directly, they fill out a form, basically, those form captures. Um, and then we're doing some with phone calls, but the phone calls are a bit nebulous. So it's not a direct response. Awesome. Okay, um, chat bots, which I think is probably why some of you came to this session. Um, we kicked around chatbots a couple of years ago. We're interested in figuring out what we could do there. Um, our motivation was primarily, given how complex our system is, helping our customers answer questions quickly and more easily. That was sort of our, our challenge. Um, given our relationship with Loyal and their capabilities there, we partnered with them. We launched just about a year ago with our first chatbot deployment. Very small, focused on billing. And I say small, meaning vertically oriented. We get lots of volume, lots of billing questions, but it was focused just on billing. Um, our revenue cycle is very diverse, so we don't have single comprehensive bill pay in all cases. So it's oftentimes hard for a patient to know exactly where to pay their bill versus their health plan premium versus their urgent, kill, urgent care bill. So the chatbot's helping them find the right place to pay the, bill, pay the bill. That worked well. We've expanded for things like our location. So our major hospitals, people have questions about things like parking, um, cafeteria menus, the basic mundane stuff. But again, it's not, it's not always easy to find that content on our website so that the, the bot's able to help out the conversation there. Um, most recently, we launched this summer with our health information management team. We get lots of requests for birth certificates. Patients don't realize that's a health department question, not a health system question. So we've been able to train the bot to answer that question, and we're literally redirecting dozens of phone calls every week. Normally, we just say, sorry, we can't help you. Call the health department. The bot's able to catch that up front and provide the right answer. Based upon where they live, there's a local contact for that with the health department. Um, so those are just examples where we're not looking to boil the ocean, put the chatbot on our homepage, but we're trying to find those use cases where we can add value. Um, we've done the integration with our provider directory. So our next step is when they're browsing service content to have the bot be able to recommend providers based upon a conversation. So um, male versus female, accepting new patients, what languages they speak. Um, our provider directory has a pretty deep algorithm on how we're recommending which provider. So we think that there may be an opportunity for the bot to be able to make it more conversational. People don't necessarily want to do a deep search and the bot can recommend that. And then Brian mentioned the Cerner APIs end game for us is having the bot be able to schedule. So once you've picked the provider via conversation to schedule directly, and then me personally, I want to do more facility-based. So think labs, think screening, mammograms, things like that. They're not provider-based encounters to have the bot be able to handle some of that workload too. Yeah. And so adding to that, so what, what we found early on talking to a lot of systems was that um, we, we talked to a lot of call centers and it was like 30 to 50 to upwards of 80% of the calls coming into a lot of contact centers are non-appointment related calls, mm -hmm. right? So, so you have this huge amount of call volume um, for calls that really shouldn't be going into an appointment center. And they're, they're, they tend to be pretty, pretty similar calls across health systems or questions rather, um, and, and the same ones over and over again. And so it, it's really kind of tailor-made for um, for a chatbot solution. And then, um, you know, the other thing, as Jeremy mentioned, once you kind of launch with that, 
um, you always get additional questions, right? That you never um, you never plan for, like the, like the birth certificate one, um, because you don't control that. Yep. You don't build content for that on your site, right? So you wouldn't think of it, and you're not going to see that in your search result in in like your search. Uh, um, analytics or things like that. So you start to uncover these kind of tidbits like through the conversations where you're like, oh, I never thought about that. Here's an opportunity to, to create a much better consumer experience and to get somebody on their way. Um, and so I think the challenge, um, again, as Jeremy mentioned, is there's so many use cases, right? So we can look at billing use cases, appointment use cases, um, use cases around specific service lines. And what we tend to do is kind of Focus on the ones that we know we can get buy-in, um, and also where we have the answers to questions, and and start that engagement kind of right off, um, you know, right out of the gate with those different areas of the site, and then kind of build from there. Because you can't control the thing. I think a couple things to remember if you're thinking and considering about um, launching a chatbot on your public site. One, it's very hard to control what people ask. Um, if, if it's truly an AI-driven chatbot and it says, ask me anything, um, people will ask it anything. Um, but just, just to kind of throw this out there so you're not thinking, oh my God, the sky's going to fall and it's going to be HIPAA issues and all of this. We don't actually see a, an overwhelmingly you know, huge number of, of clinical questions. It's questions like, what do I bring to my appointment? How do I log into my MyChart? Yeah. Um, you know, how do I track my time? How do I, how do I contact my, HR? Yeah, it's the most bizarre stuff. All of these like really kind of basic questions that um, that you probably don't have answers for on your website. Right. Um, and so it's a great way to engage, answer questions, direct people, um, and really improve that experience. But then once you kind of start to create that engagement and people are used to it, then you can start to kind of turn up the dial a bit and use it for transactional um, conversations. So that point there, I mean, are you ever looking at that data and say, oh, maybe we need to build this? All the time. We, we have we have a we call them the bot collective. They meet every Friday. They literally look at all of the they're called utterances that people say to the bot that we can't answer, and they're prioritizing. Um, I mentioned the, the the birth certificate's a great example. We did not plan for that. That's something that we saw utterances about it, and we built a use case for it. So yeah. I mean, are you building pages for SEO? Or you In some cases, we will. So we're. Yeah. It depends. It depends. Correct. So we've we've added. We haven't added net new pages. We've I mentioned menus, cafeteria menus. We've added deeper content on that because we saw common questions there. But yes, we're absolutely looking at the analytics and the utterances every week to prioritize future future work. No doubt. We saw like a good example to from a content perspective. Uh, Piedmont Healthcare is one of our partners and. Um, they have on every single provider page, they have a list of the insurance uh, plans that are accepted. Mm -hmm. um, but what was funny is people kept asking the bot, what insurance do you take? What insurance do you take? And what we learned were that was that they weren't going to the provider pages and looking for that information. It was at a different step yeah. in their journey, right? And so by simply letting them talk, we're like, oh, okay, we can answer that through the bot. And you know, first it's send them to a page with a list of, of uh, insurance plans. But as we keep growing the program, um, going back to the, the you know, earlier conversation around data and getting your house in order, um, with the bot, we can say, you know, what kind of plan do you have? We can start to ask them questions and walk them through that and actually give them better information than just a list of plans on a page. So there's a lot of opportunities for content improvement, content creation. 
Um, you can capture data, so it's a great conversion tool um, where you can ask people for some information. Maybe it's a request an appointment. And then we just started doing scheduling through the bot too. So we, we see it as transactional as well um, yep. and really being able to take it through that whole piece. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So let's land this plane then. Yeah. Um, so looking forward, I would say we're still in the first inning here. There's so much more we can do. To us, it's all about how do we make it easier for the customer. So I could talk about lots of technologies like voice and things like that that we're also doing, but they're not ready for prime time yet. Um, so I think we, we still see lots of growth and headroom for us, um, but it will always be based upon what's best for the customer, what makes it easier for them. That's how we make those decisions. HCIC Next is made possible by Greystone.net, the Healthcare Internet Conference, and Touchpoint Media. To learn more about this show and others like it, visit us online at touchpoint.health.